Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. It was chaotic. There is some beauty in chaos. It isn't what I intended to show, but I enjoy being out there, and I'll see you soon. That's what Frank Ocean had to say Wednesday in a statement canceling his performance at week two of Coachella, which his representatives claim was on doctor's orders due to, quote, two fractures and a sprain in his left leg. Frank Ocean, of course, has made some of the greatest albums of the last decade or so, but hasn't released one since 2016's Blonde and hadn't performed since 2017. And his performance last Sunday night during Coachella's first weekend was, by all accounts, very unusual. Rolling Stone's Ethan Millman and Tomas Mier just confirmed rumors that the original plan was to have an ice rink on stage, with over 100 skaters, according to their sources. None of that ended up happening. In today's episode, we'll talk about what did happen and look back at Frank's career. To do that, I have Tomas Mier, as well as Simon vozik Levinson. Tomas, you were in the crowd covering what has now become one of the most infamous and controversial festival performances maybe live performances, period. You were there. Frank Ocean took the stage or maybe didn't even take the stage because he was backstage for a lot of the time. Maybe paint the picture. We're truly talking about three years of anticipation because we expected <laughs> him to perform in 2020, but then that got canceled. So we've been waiting for this moment for years at this point. People in the crowd were very excited. I got to see Blackpink and Bad Bunny from an artist area closer to the stage. An hour before those the headlining sets, that, those areas were not packed. But for Frank Ocean, an hour and a half before, it already felt like sardines packed into a really small space. The main area was already to see people flocking from other stages to the main stage to see Frank Ocean. Like people were genuinely very excited. And also if you weren't a Frank Ocean fan, it was just one of those moments where I have to be there. I must see this performance. I must see what's going on. And I think that's what made Frank's performance different from the Black Pinks and the Bad Bunnies of Coachella. Because people had never seen this man perform and wanted to be there to witness history. And I guess we did. We did witness history, but we didn't get to see the type of performance that we would have wanted. We all understood that he was this elusive chanteur moment that perhaps he wasn't <laughs> going to deliver everything he would have wanted but what we got was just not adequate so the set begins and also important point coachella has strict curfew and things are timed pretty tight i know the weekend was about 40 minutes late last year but frank was about an hour late and my understanding from on the spot reports and tiktoks and stuff is that there were tons of people who had been waiting out in the sun in the front the whole day. So there were people, from what I understand, passing out and stuff. It had been too long and tension is growing. So what was that hour wait? I mean, it was grueling because you don't know when he's just going to go on stage. There was no, hey, he's going to be on at this time. Like, it just was going to happen at any <laughs> moment. And you were just waiting. And if the lights like suddenly flickered, you would think that he was going to come on or something like that. I saw TikToks of folks that sprinted from like the entrance of the festival gates to the front stage, to the barricade, to be as close as possible. Seeing accounts from Frank Ocean stands themselves, I know they were not satisfied either. All of a sudden, the entire stage was covered by a screen. And there was just like a small little sliver. Imagine a piggy bank and just a little sliver where you put in the coins. That's how big the area Frank Ocean was performing on was. 
And the entire stage was covered by a huge screen. So it really felt like we were watching a documentary screening or something of the sort. And of course, at home, people were finding out just a couple hours before that there was not going to be a live stream that hadn't been announced. And so that was a surprise too. So some early signs of problems, no live stream, an hour late. And yeah, he comes on and it starts. And was it clear from the start that this was going to be underwhelming or did it start strong? How did it feel? I think I was just confused most of the time. (laughs) The beginning of the performance started with some dancers marching around in a circle. And so I was like, oh, he's about to pop out. And those moments lasted way too long. If that makes sense, we were just waiting for like something to happen. Come on, girl, give us nothing was the feeling that we had. And once he did come on stage, it was slow versions of his songs, maybe versions that were a bit modified. So for a lot of people who maybe have just heard the studio versions, there was like, oh, what is what's going on? What is this? And then I would say that between songs, he would take very long pauses before coming back on stage, performing another track. So that was another part that I think took away from the performance is that we were just waiting way too much for some sort of performance or some sort of singing. And in some, sometimes he sang, sometimes he just vibed, sometimes he was not even on the little piggy bank slot. Like it was just not a performance. It was a large screen with a little tiny ant of a Frank Ocean sitting down the entire time. We started with Novocaine. which is a great early Frank Ocean song. I can't feel nothing superhuman even when I'm fucking Viagra popping. And I guess, weirdly, there's so much to talk about here. The last time, ironically, the last time we devoted an entire episode to a single Coachella performance, you can probably guess, was Beyonce's. And it was the polar opposite in a way because that was by far the most planned out, the most impressive, the most singular work of art festival performance perhaps the world had ever seen. She didn't, it wasn't just a performance, it was a cohesive piece of work. And it was an extraordinary statement and a big moment in in Beyonce's career. (laughs) This is really the anti-Beyonce performance for many reasons. What I was going to say is that I feel like the crowd's unfamiliarity with the what sounds to me, although it's hard to parse through the shitty recordings, sometimes interesting reworkings of his songs. That's not a problem for me. I think that reworking your songs is a great thing that more current performers should do. There's way too many people just going through the exact motions one way or another of the studio version. So I think that's great. So I'm less sympathetic to that complaint. I think that that's you know, maybe a a crowd full of, someone was saying that a crowd full of influencers and TikTokers, only some of whom were uh, actual Frank Ocean fans, were probably not the right target for these reimagined songs when they might have, in truth, barely even known the original versions and were just there to kind of vibe. So (laughs) that was a problem from the beginning, right? I will say that is true. Weekend One is notorious for being filled with influencers in the crowd and maybe fans of not music and just of the spectacle. I will say this, after this weekend, I've been hearing from many people who attended that Rosalia set was out of the ordinary and amazing and so good. 
And I think that just goes to show that even if you do rework your songs, you can still put on a show. And even if you don't, people don't know the lyrics or don't know the language, you can still enjoy the show and you can enjoy the performance. And not to say, not to compare Rosalia and Frank Ocean because they're two very different artists. But on that, in that regard, I think with Frank, we just felt like we were watching some sort of like fever dream producer brain, which maybe that's what Frank is. And maybe he wasn't meant for somebody like me, who's a lover of pop music to understand. But I don't think that messaging came across right away or in the right way to a general public. If this was a Frank Ocean specific set, maybe we would have been having a different conversation. How long was this set altogether, by the way? Including the DJ thing, which we'll get to in a minute. It was around an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes if we include the DJ set, which (laughs) was by far the best part of the performance. And Frank was nowhere to be found. That's the part that seems indefensible to me in the sense that if you're there to perform and you put on a DJ who's playing some of your songs, some things you work, and then just some stuff, that's not what people came for. So that's why was that the best part? No, yeah, nobody came for that because we all wanted to see Frank, but then it was like, oh shit, this is actually really good. DJ Crystal Mess slayed that. Like fully, she was on stage and made everybody in the crowd dance. And by this point, we had just been standing, seeing flashes of a production box on stage. And now we were seeing this like beautiful black woman DJing songs that we all know and that we all love and adding a little 90s house flair to them. We were ready. Wow. I don't, it's not that I doubt you. It's just that that doesn't, that really doesn't speak well for the actual Frank performance. So shortly after the DJ set, you heard two of Frank's best songs. Nights. You call me from a seance. You were from my past life. Hope you're doing well, bro. I've been out here head first. Always like the Nikes. And what you heard was just the studio versions. And he wasn't even holding a microphone. He was kind of just singing into the camera or lip syncing into the camera. And there was no pretense that you could hear him singing at that point. I mean, honestly, seeing him lip sync and have energy into the camera felt like more of a performance than when he was actually singing or playing. And that's just indicative of how that was. Let's face it, that is not any different than a lot of what someone like Travis Scott does on stage, sometimes what Playboy Cardi does on stage. Like a lot of times they're acting as hype men to their own recordings that are playing in the background and they might add, they might rap over some verses, they might not. I do think that there is a somewhat, to me, scary redefinition of even what a performance is that was already happening where people are just perfectly happy. And you, Tomas, said you don't really mind <laughs> if someone lip syncs. I I don't mind lip sync. I don't mind it at all because sometimes you just want to hear the song be played and have a a good moment. And I want to do, I do want to say this, having somebody like Blackpink who was filled with choreography and spectacle the night before, and then putting that side by side, Frank, it's like the complete opposite, like the antithesis, as you were saying with Beyonce. And I think that we've come to expect these sort of spectacles with these Coachella headlining performances. And I'm getting war flashbacks to our Rihanna halftime show conversation. But it very much feels that way. There was just nothing there. It just felt like we were watching a huge screen. And this huge comeback, it felt like an artist who has been out of the public eye, who is elusive, who is trying too hard to be mysterious, 
There's actually a lot to unpack there. I do want, I think we have a serious ideological difference about performance because I understand in elaborate choreography, when there are moments that have to be lip synced, that goes back to at least Madonna. But people like that usually had moments, there's just moments when you're doing too much, literally, not in the metaphorical sense, but you're literally doing too much. You're moving too fast to actually be able to really sing. So there are moments in the performance that are lip sync, but at the same time, there's moments, a lot of other moments when you're actually singing. The loss of the expectation that there should actually be a performance element to the performance, I think is just bad. Simon, I think you want to say something. Yeah, I think I, I probably land pretty close to you on that question. I would just say the only thing I would say is there there are some artists where you know that's the deal going in, like not going expecting a virtuosic level of live performance. You're expecting to just get a lot of energy and be able to dance and move. And that's cool. If that's what you're paying for and you're enjoying the experience, that's great. What makes it sting with someone like Frank Ocean yes. is that under the right circumstances, he can be a truly incredible transcendent live performer. I'm just going to tell a very brief story about Another night when Frank Ocean played Coachella, this was in 2012, more than 10 years ago now, I saw him play Coachella in, I think it was one of the smaller side stages, the Gobi stage. He had technical difficulties then too. There were issues with the the mic and the connection and stuff that happens at a big festival. But what I remember is that when he actually was able to get through that and come out on stage, he gave these just like incredible, sublime, gorgeous live vocals. He had this kind of, he was able to communicate this subtlety and vulnerability and artistry to like a sweaty festival crowd that had been standing out in the desert for hours, which isn't the easiest thing to do. That was an incredible performance. And he's really, he's capable of being truly great, even in that kind of setting. And I think that's what makes it disappointing to people who wanted a chance to see that and got this instead. And to be totally clear, he did have plenty of live vocals. He was really performing at other points in the show. And he had a band too. He was not, except it was a weird combination of a totally old-fashioned performance done in a bizarre way and this whatever the hell else was happening to us. It was kind of going back and forth. No, I will say this. The set before Frank Ocean was Bjork. Bjork is not doing backflips on stage. She's just standing there (laughs) with an orchestra behind her, performing her music and doing so beautifully and interacting with the crowd, speaking in Spanish, and just having this sort of energy that you'd come to expect with somebody as iconic as Bjork. And I think it's not that people expected anything more than him singing. I think it was the fact that he was not really on stage. He was not really singing to <laughs> us. He was very rarely facing the crowd. And the be- the best moment, along with DJ Crystal Mess, who is an amazing DJ. By the way, that was a reference to some of the parties that he was throwing in New York City right before the pandemic. And I thought that was a really nice nod to that. The other highlight for me was when this little boy named Josiah played his inner child as on the piano and was lip syncing along to one of Frank's songs. That was pretty powerful to me, if not overly explained, because he was performing, this child was wearing the same clothing that Frank was and playing piano, or supposedly playing piano, I'm not sure if he actually was. And then the words inner child were showing on this big screen going around him. I think this kid is the new Maddie Ziegler. It's like a new iteration of the uh, Maddie Ziegler <laughs> really a- approach. So Frank's inner child was lip syncing to Frank's cover of the song Nightlife. Hello. 
And that's a song that was actually written by Willie Nelson. But Frank was clearly covering the Aretha Franklin version, which is on her album, I think, Aretha Arrives from 1967. And I should say this speaks to Frank's notably fantastic and wide-ranging taste in music. It's worth seeking out his list of his 50 favorite songs that he put out in, I think, 2016. It ranges from Stevie Wonder's Jesus Children of America to I Am the Walrus to that song Vibrate by Outkast to a song called Bitch Please by Death Grips. And anyway, my favorite thing in the YouTube bootleg of the Inner Child segment is you can hear someone ask what song it is and you hear the reply, I have no idea, which does go to the issue of how all this was going over with the Coachella crowd. And then Frank went on stage after and was like, that's Josiah and he's playing my inner child. <laughs> so it, it was a lot of those moments where it was like, okay, we got the message. He's, it is a bare minimum expectation when you're performing and being paid a large amount of money at a large festival as the headliner that you should perhaps step out into the actual stage. <laughs> There's been a lot of, we need to have some discussion about what artists owe us. And it's like, okay, I think here's what they owe us. It's true. They don't owe us anything. That is true. And I think that I do love that thing. Be like, what do they really owe us? Are we asking too much? Look, it is not asking too much if someone is being paid to headline a festival, no matter what they're going through, no matter what, to come out from behind the screen and perform in person. If you think that is asking too much of an artist, I think that you're being too easy on artists. I think that is a bare minimum. And I think we should mention that, look, he there's a tragic side slash backstory here. His brother died in, sounds like a horrific car accident back in 2020. And he mentioned that his brother loved Coachella and the performance was dedicated to him. I don't know what how that factored into everything. That is really sad, and that is a weird twist to the whole thing. I mean, the other thing more broadly, and more information is coming out as we speak, and that's what's weird about someone, there was a review in a large newspaper, I won't call them out because I don't want to, again, I'm trying to be nice today, where they were, they said this was a brilliantly planned, intensely deep statement. What we do know is that is not true. This was a chaotic, last-minute, frantic attempt to remake a performance. I want to shout out this, this Twitter account, The Festive Owl, who is basically like someone who covers festivals and seems to have good sources. They were the first to report that this whole thing was supposed to be like some kind of... <laughs> <laughs> we missed on the very strange idea of sort of Frank Ocean on ice, which is what this, they had built a whole skating rink. This was all supposed to be on a skating rink with skaters. And then at the last minute, he yanked it. And what Rolling Stone were the first to report was that there was purportedly some kind of ankle injury involved. A very interesting kind of ankle injury that prevented him from ice skating, but did not prevent him from like really seeming pretty spry on stage. So a very interesting kind of ankle injury, I would say. But so all the plans were, this was completely thrown up together at the last minute. Some of the guys who were going to skate on a hockey podcast, which is the most awesome place I can imagine to break music news, but they were on this hockey podcast and they were like, they confirm the rumors that Frank was basically threatening not to perform at all. So this was a mess. How much, Tomas, was the chaos that we now know about hinted at in what you saw? They did an amazing job at camera work. I'll say that. Uh -huh. A lot of cameras and they were just flashing between different parts of 
that backstage. So I don't think, I think the chaos was just, it was just there, but it wasn't like, oh, we, th- here's a hole in the performance because we don't, we didn't know what to expect. So of course we had no idea about the ice ring. The only indication that could have happened was those people that were marching around in a circle before Frank took the stage. So that would be the only indication to me that there was some sort of ice moment going on. I think one thing that might have been a hint that something was going on were these long pauses. These long pauses between songs seem kind of interesting. For sure. There was just long pauses of it would just get dark. The screens would go off a little bit. And then we're like, oh, I wonder what's happening next. Maybe an outfit change. No, I'm just playing. But actually, you were expecting him to come out and do something a little bit more vivid, more more lively. And you would just get the same sort of energy, but just long pauses in between songs. So if you were maybe had just listened to a song and were maybe feeling it a little bit, that died down. And then he had to revamp it up every, almost after every song. I did want to get more into the discourse over this. I think it's really interesting. I think that in the initial reactions, I was seeing it took a while for for the consensus to, to really take over that this was a huge disappointment. I think most journalistic reports were understandably measured and you're following in the moment and you're just suggesting that it was a little odd. And then basically what happened is there were tons of TikToks and stuff being like, not to not to overstate it, but being like, that fucking sucked. That was, there were a lot of TikToks being like, what the hell was that? That sucked. That was so disappointing. Because it's easier if you're not a professional journalist to just be like, that sucked. So what happened was the fan feedback became so overwhelming that this was a disappointment that sort of by the next morning, we were running a story about the fan disappointment and it became pretty obvious that was the consensus and people were pretty mad about it initially. And then the next thing was this sort of this interesting sort of backlash. A lot of we need to look at what artists owe us kind of thing. They don't owe us anything. And then a sort of then Justin Bieber, what do we make of this? Justin Bieber comes out and because there's some criticism of someone he's not even friends with, as far as I know, <laughs> Justin Bieber who was in the crowd puts out a statement I was blown away by Frank Ocean's Coachella performance. His artistry is simply unmatched. His style, his taste, his voice, his attention to detail. I was deeply moved and made me want to keep going and get better as an artist. He continues to set the bar high and gave me a night I will never forget. Do we, is it just that, can we, can an artist be brilliant? We can acknowledge that Frank Ocean is a brilliant artist, a brilliant recording artist, and sometimes a really interesting live artist, but can we no longer acknowledge that a genius can give a shitty performance? Is there something, has something changed in the culture where we just cannot even go there? No one was saying this invalidates Frank as an artist, maybe a couple of people, but they were just saying this performance was no good. But Justin Bieber felt the need to step in and really, as if, as if, I don't know, it's all very dramatic. It seems like just the idea of just, look, off night, bad performance, but no, you have to release a statement. <laughs> <laughs> like like defending all artists. This is an insult to all artists everywhere if one artist is acknowledged to have given a disappointing concert. What do we make of this? It's an interesting dynamic, right? I think there there are a few ways to view that. I think one, one way of looking at it is that 
social media in general, things like TikTok have made it so much easier for the everyday fan who paid a lot of money for a Coachella ticket and felt ripped off to really express that in a really harsh and direct way <laughs> that the artist sees. But I think many artists may feel like they need to stand with their own there and defend a fellow artist, even if the performance did suck. Like they maybe feel like they want to just back up someone who they respect. I think in Justin Bieber's case, I think, I don't know if they're like close friends, but I think they did actually work together really early in Frank's career when he was just like a, a buzzy songwriter huh. in LA who was writing songs trying to get on that way. So there, there may be just like an artist to artist respect there where even, you know, as you're saying, sort of like the more charitable way of looking at it is for an artist, maybe they feel, yeah, he deserves to have an off night. And, and e even that is something that deserves respect. I think that for a fan, it's a lot harder to swallow that. I think if Prince came back to life, he'd be like, wow, I'd be so happy that there's a world where Prince is just an example of someone who is just an undisputed super genius. And yet he took so much shit for so much of what he did, I don't know, post-1990. There were so many albums and so many performances that people took issue with. And this new idea <laughs> that because you're a genius, you can do no wrong is new. It's really new. It's fascinating. It, it, and it's, it's so different. And it is a social media driven world. And it is a thing where everyone is afraid of negativity. And, and then, you know, GQ ran a piece saying that this was actually great. This performance was actually great. Tomas, is there any world just being as generous as possible? Is there any world in which this performance was actually great? Maybe you can make the case for you can flip and play devil's advocate against yourself or not. You can be totally honest. If I play devil's advocate, I would say that <laughs> trying really hard here. Um, I think maybe it wasn't for a Coachella audience. That's maybe what I, what my devil's advocate idea would say. Maybe this was for the ultra Frank Ocean fanatic or the ultra like people who are very into production or these small little details. Maybe it was for them and not for us. During the performance, I tried to stopping myself from saying what is going on because I was like, maybe I'm in a bubble. Maybe I'm surrounded by people who are not enjoying it right now. But elsewhere in the festival, there are a lot of folks who are enjoying it. I had a lot of those thoughts during the performance because I didn't want to just right away write him off as this was a horrible performance. But it was. And I think a lot of people <laughs> understood that. I, a lot of people understood that at the festival. And I saw this tweet from a Frank Ocean stan account that said, Frank Ocean's music is fantastic, but the obscure, mysterious, low-key artist shit be getting on my nerves after a while. We are not owed musicians time and work. Being a musician is just a job at the end of the day, but I think it's so boring. And that's very much the messaging that a lot of fans of Frank Ocean are feeling. It's gone too far. And it's different than somebody like Rihanna, who was gone from releasing music for very long, but during the time was still interacting with fans, was still dropping her makeup, was still present in a way. And with Frank, it's like he's completely gone. All we have is his Homer radio show on Apple Music, which I don't think he even speaks on. So it's that sort of situation where you've been so removed from this artist and you've always been connected to the music, maybe the nostalgia, because we're talking, what, 2016? Like a lot of his fans, I was in high school. That's how a lot of these fans felt connected to the music was that nostalgia. And I don't think that was touched on at all with the performance. 
If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. One justification I was seeing is, and this is similar to the Rihanna justification, but let's face it, the Rihanna performance was way more planned and accomplished than this as a spectacle. And it at least matched that whatever you say about the Rihanna performance, the Rihanna performance is like Beyonce Coachella compared to this, it sounds like. I mean, you know, so, but there's kind of be like, oh, you don't know what you don't know Frank Ocean. You can't expect him to do anything. You can't expect him to be on stage. You can't expect him. But like, Simon, you've seen him before. Like you said, he's done better than this. I wasn't there this year. But just based on everything, what makes this frustrating is that it would be easier to have an opinion on this if it was just that he was always maddeningly erratic and always not there. That's not actually the case. And Frank Ocean actually tries. He can be an incredibly singular, brilliant artist. I mentioned that the time that I saw him at Coachella now more than a decade ago in 2012, that performance was so good that I remember a few months after that, he came and played New York. He played Terminal 5, which is a big cavernous venue. Again, not a place that's necessarily suited to a kind of like really personal, intimate kind of performance. And he just, he completely, he overcame that and gave this incredibly distinct, memorable performance where he was so present and the vocals were so on point and nuanced. And it was just like, it felt like a once in a lifetime kind of thing to see it. That's, he's absolutely someone who's capable of giving truly compelling live performance. I saw a clip of him doing Bad Religion at this performance, and he was singing his ass off. So it's, there were great moments of vocal performance and stuff, but at the same time, he was in that his little backstage area on a screen. It's, no, that's, it's confusing. That, that's what would save it, those small moments where he was singing his ass off and was delivering those vocals. Again, it's like part of that nostalgia, I think, as well. And I like hearing from Simon, who has seen him perform in the past, because I think if you come to expect, or if you knew that this is the sort of thing that he did then I would understand why people would enjoy it. But for the most part, it's just, you just have much higher expectations about what's going to happen. And then, yeah, to take it, to put this in context, again, it has been seven years since he released Blonde. Blonde is, that said, Blonde is one of the best albums of this century. People have named it the best of the decade. It's a landmark, beloved album. but. So was D'Angelo's Voodoo, and then he disappeared for many years. 
And that hurt. He came back with Black Messiah and it was incredible, but it took a long time. And it does, your reputation can go from genius to troubled genius to disappointment really fast if you don't produce. If you, if you, seven years now, I think is the equivalent of way longer a long time ago. It's a long time to not come out with an album. And that was after a long wait in the first place. And so what do we know about what he's been doing for the last seven years? And how can you describe the way that fans in the larger music community have kind of dealt with this absence? Frank Ocean has taken this really distinct path that I think has led steadily away from the center of pop music. He's someone who began as a really in-demand songwriter, made songs that not only critics love, but that actually really connected with the mass public. And then his music has gotten more more personal, more distinct, more idiosyncratic over time. Like you said, the last full-length album he released was in 2016. Bond is an incredible album that I think was ahead of its time. And one thing about an album like that is you can listen to it seven years later and it still sounds ahead of its time. It doesn't sound dated. It's not just about nostalgia in that sense. But since then, I think for fans, it's been a really maddening absence. He's been someone who... he'll show up at red carpets holding like an avant-garde like art doll that's like kind of cool and funny but it's not music and it's not a performance he'll announce merch drops that then run into all kinds of delays and complications that's something people get really mad about again that's not music that's not releasing something new and it seems like more time goes by he's chosen to take this kind of a different path maybe into more of a tastemaker a cult artist the kind of genius who you don't always get to see, who's not always like out there in your face. And that's but that's cool if that's the path that he's taken. I think I do think that geniuses have the prerogative to do that, to take the long sabbatical and wait. But the only thing I would say is if you're in that mode or in that phase, you probably shouldn't take the check to headline Coachella. That's not those two things. There's a tension. Yeah, I think there's a strong sense he just didn't want to be doing this at all. Uh, that's how it seems. And that's that's his right. Like he, he certainly the last seven years have not made him seem like an artist who wants to be going out and playing shows and headlining arenas, although he could surely, I think, do that. He's chosen a different path. I still, the music that that he has made is so unique and brilliant that I still have faith that like, if and when Frank Ocean does release another album, I expect that to be pretty great. And but and he can take as long as he wants to do that, right? It's not, there is a level on which it's like, you can't, you can't rush that. But it, the choice to headline a, a major festival like that and give a kind of chaotic, messy, phoned-in performance in the middle of that is something that is almost guaranteed to alienate people and tip more into the kind of disappointment category, like you're saying. This is a guy who's like a one-man R&B radio head. He's an incredibly innovative and fascinating songwriter and record maker and singer. And so his reputation is well-earned. And like you said, I just went back and listened to Blonde for the first time in a while. And it's weird, like, as great as it is, I'd always spent more time with Channel Orange, the previous album, which is just, is also a great album. And there's a lot to still dive into and live with in Blonde. It still sounds good. It still sounds new. But yeah, 2016 was a long time ago, especially in pop music. There were rumors that he had finished a new album years ago. And he keeps promising, and I think part of the, also part of the disappointment is a lot of people expected him to maybe announce a new album. And instead he did this, it's, I'm not here about new music, but it's not, there isn't new music. Like just this kind of, it's a lot of coyness, a lot of cuteness. A lot of brilliant artists also have a sort of troll aspect to them. We were just talking about this the other week with Lana Del Rey, but he's taken it to, 
And even a lot of brilliant artists even can have con man aspects to them. There's, there's someone like Bob Dylan has like weird mixes of genius and con man occasionally. And it's easy to forget that Blonde came out in this bizarre kind of twinned release with this other album, Endless, that as best as anyone can tell, was basically a ploy to get out of his long-term record contract and then immediately release this new album, Blonde, that's way better than Endless, which was the contract fulfillment album. And it's a weird mix of like brilliant artistic achievement and slight scam. I saw a clip of ASAP Rocky talking about this, where he was just thrilled, understandably, with what Frank Ocean did, which he's one of the first artists ever to flip the script and screw over his record company rather than vice versa. And he even said that record companies were being tougher than ever on artists and contracts in the wake of that, which I had never heard before because they were so scared that someone would manage to do that to them again. But he, but it was this weird mix of like, ha ha ha, I'm pulling this over the wool over the eyes of the record company that was in slight danger of overshadowing the Blonde album. I know that I personally found not, I don't care what he does to his record company, but there was this whole thing with the woodworking live stream and just the endless is a visual album, but ha ha ha, that's not actually the album. Here's Blonde. That I, in the same way that some Frank fans are now finding his antics tiresome, I found that aspect of it a little tiresome. I didn't enjoy it. I'm I'm glad you brought up the woodworking thing because that's a that's an element of that kind of bizarre tale that that I think sometimes gets forgotten. That like when people there was a huge amount of anticipation for Frank Ocean's <laughs> next album after Channel Orange. It had been a few years, I think, four years at that point already. For that, and people checked in to, to hear the new Frank Ocean album. It was a visual album, and what they got was like a, a 45 minute or an hour long video of Frank Ocean, like very slowly and painstakingly constructing a staircase, doing like carpentry and woodworking. And then, and there was like some music in there too, but it was like mostly about the woodworking. And that was this kind of baffling, bizarre thing. But the punchline was that then immediately after that, once he had fulfilled his contract with the label, then he released this unbelievably great, brilliant, self-released album, Blonde. It, it all worked because there was that punchline. I think Frank Ocean, could, he could release a great album tomorrow and the Coachella situation would similarly have that kind of payoff and people would be like, okay, haha, right now. Now I get it. This is actually brilliant. It's a little more frustrating when you do only the first half without the second half. For example, like he hates the Grammys. He won't, I actually, very early on in the existence of this podcast, we had the Grammy uh, producers on and they said that they, they thought maybe he was boycotting the Grammys because his first performance on, his performance on the Grammys early on didn't go well and there were technical difficulties. And he immediately, that got him to speak up. He then responded to something from Rolling Stone. He's now called the Grammy guys old and said no, it was because of basically the Grammys treatment of hip hop and R&B and then hasn't been on the Grammys since. And it is sort of a thing to be like, okay, sure, you're punishing the institution, but you're also depriving your fans of seeing you. So it seems like he, and in this case, maybe there was, he does record labels, the Grammys, Coachella is another big legacy institution. There may have been an element of screwing with Coachella, the institution, with fans being the collateral damage. I think that's possible to imagine. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think if you look at the whole arc of Frank's career, he's someone who's made it really clear that he's not here for what he perceives as the bullshit of the record industry or the entertainment industry. And that is admirable in a lot of ways. I think it is cool that he doesn't play the game and he doesn't try to, he's not here to make a big corporation a ton of money. He's here to do his art. That's cool. That's harder to see as cool if you're someone who's 
been standing out in the heat in the <laughs> desert for hours and you just want to see Frank Ocean play some songs that you love and then instead you get whatever that was. Yeah. At least, Tomas, at least he didn't come out on the stage and do carpentry for an hour. The, that would have been more visual than what we got. Yeah. So. <laughs> he may, Maybe the idea was he was going to do carpentry on ice skates. It's that, hard to do that with a sprained ankle. It is also, it is actually, I think, an under-remarked upon aspect of all this is that the thing we missed out on was, quote-unquote, missed out on was like an ice skating spectacle, which, quite frankly, no one asked for. I want to see it. Those, I found those rumors tantalizing. <laughs> like I, I want to see what his vision was with the ice skates, but I, but sadly, it seems I'm, like I'm we, going we to, I'm know. going to channel Andy Green, our friend Andy Green, for a second and point out that the, to my knowledge, the last rock and roll pop music ice skating thing was also a famous fiasco it was rick wakeman from emerson lake and palmer he had something called the myths and legends of king arthur and the knights of the round table which was an ice stage show that was an absolute catastrophe presented over three nights in july 1975 at wembley that was an ice skating thing and that is, to, seriously, in the entire history of pop music, my, the only previous ice skating moment. And it seems like it's cursed, just a, a cursed idea. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I think there are, sometimes you listen to Blonde and you might think that Frank is in some ways the most prog rock of contemporary yes. artists. There, there is something there maybe <laughs> with the ice skates, and, and but possibly maybe it's something that doesn't work, whether you're Emerson Lake and Palmer or Frank Ocean. <laughs> I don't know. I think this is the kind of thing that could have a documentary because the idea that there were all these like ice skaters ready to go and then being told, no, there's no skating. There's no rink. Frank, I love D'Angelo, but there's, it's D'Angelo is also a little bit of Axl Rose. Axl Rose, who used to demand a grand piano in his hotel rooms, whether there was one or not, so they would have to hoist one through the windows <laughs> and stuff like that. So to demand in the middle of the desert, where I must point out, is it can be quite hot there in the desert, though cool at night, to demand an ice rink be built and then subsequently demand that said ice rink be dismantled at the last minute is very funny behavior. That's hilarious. What I do know is that the baby from the Met Gala came out, maybe the baby would be yes. ice skating. Yes. If you could teach a robot baby to ice skate, then that would be actually the most impressive thing of all. I think that would have made yeah. it, that would have made up for that everything. That would have saved it. That would yes. have saved it. He obviously, he comes from Odd Future, which is, it's almost easy to forget at this point. It's been so far, but it also is amazing that obvious point, but the, one of the big concerns about Odd Future was that they were seen, that lyrics that were seen as homophobic or really were homophobic. And now two of the most prominent people have come out as queer in one way or another, both Tyler and Frank. So there's a certain irony there. But he came out of Odd Future, which always had this sort of prankish approach to everything. What do you remember? How have things changed from the very beginning? Simon, as far as perceptions of him. It's interesting to remember how it all started now more than a decade ago. Frank Ocean in the early 2010s when Odd Future was this huge sensation phenomenon that, that had everyone's attention in both good and bad ways. This group of anarchic pranksters and trolls on the margins of music making everyone pay attention. Frank was at that time the most, the smoothest and most palatable, most pop member of that whole circle. Everyone else in Odd Future at that time were essentially these kind of rowdy teenagers making this kind of like wild and often offensive music. And Frank was someone who had actually worked in the music industry, was writing songs for, he wrote big songs for people like Beyonce or and other major artists as a professional songwriter. He was by far like in that sense, the most professional and polished member of that group. And he gave Odd Future some legitimacy for people who care about things like that, that it wasn't just a bunch of kids fucking around, that there were there was a real talented songwriter in there. And obviously, as time went by, there Odd Future wasn't a, a group of 
that had incredible talents in it. Tyler is someone who's taken his art in directions that I think would have been like unthinkable when Odd Future first first debuted, where he's become this real kind of like auteur, someone who's also perceived as a genius in his way. And Frank has taken in some ways, it's interesting to see a different path where you have someone like Tyler who you know, never became more conformist, never became more mainstream, continued to be himself, but has really consistently put out a series of really impressive and excellent albums that have gotten, I think, a lot of deserved acclaim. And Frank has gone from being someone who is the most kind of like mainstream and smoothed member of Odd Future to someone who's kind of arguably the, the on the more kind of like trollish and perplexing era of the sort of God Future diaspora. I have my own thoughts as well, but if you wanted to guide us through some of the best moments on, we're really talking about a mixtape and two studio albums and then a bunch of stuff written for other people. What to you are the highlights among all that? To me, it's the two true studio albums, Channel Orange and Bond are each masterpieces in their own way. Channel Orange, you mentioned, is the one that's like a little bit more of Frank's pop side. It has big choruses and songs that, that could be, and in some cases, were hits. You listen to the, the song Thinking About You. From Channel Orange, that's just like an all-time classic, brilliant, and just beautiful song that I think he, in some ways, could coast off that forever. And that album, Channel Orange, is is full of tons of other really great, distinct kind of idiosyncratic super storytelling. Ri- super Rich Kids is one of my favorite songs. Sweet Life is a great song. Pyramids yes. is a great song. Pyramids is an amazing song. Channel Orange is a hugely influential album. I think that the way that that kind of like personal left of center perspective and detailed storytelling that Frank brought to that album had a huge influence on a whole generation of artists throughout pop and R&B and hip hop. Where he went after that with, with Blonde is No Question is an album that's more complex, weirder, artier, another left turn from something that was already left turn, you know, that album, Bond, is just like a masterpiece. You listen to songs like Ivy. And when you said you loved me, I started nothing. And I had no chance to breathe. You listen to the other track, Solo. 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 These are songs where there's often not necessarily a traditional chorus for a structure. The songs are veering off in all kinds of unexpected and jarring directions from one song to the next, and yet it all really coheres in a really compelling, brilliant way that feels like only one person could have made that album, like no one else could make Bond other than Frank Ocean. He earned himself a lot of credit with that, and you can, after making two albums like that, you can, you've can you bought yourself the space to do what you want, and you can follow your own path to an extent. I think that the issue is that there, after a certain point, that kind of people's patience runs out. Yeah, and this is also a guy who also worked on some of the best songs on Watch the Throne, great songs with Tyler. His influence runs pretty deep over the last decade or so. Yeah, I think if you ask tons and tons of artists over the last decade, you'll hear that Frank Ocean was a major influence on them. Tomas, you've you've profiled Omar Apollo. He's someone who I see is really following yeah. in, in Frank's footsteps. I think he really has paved the way for a lot of artists who aren't afraid to experiment in the way that he has or touch on different voice filters and sounds in their music in, in that way, especially in R&B and touching in on hip hop a little bit. Um, I think he's a musical genius and 
during the performance, I was reminding myself a lot about that. I'm like, this is a genius. This is a music icon. And in my head, I'm like, maybe he can do what he wants. And sometimes I do think that way about people like him. I, and I think looking at his discography, you can just see all of that there. The repertoire he has is incredible. And the impact that he's had on music is insane. And it's really unfortunate that this performance wasn't a celebration of that in the same way that we would have wanted. I would just say his, Frank Ocean's influence on music goes even beyond R&B and hip hop, wide, widely beyond it, I would say. I think you you listen to an album like Lord's Melodrama. That's one of my yeah. favorite albums from the last 10 years. That's an album that I think you could confidently say wouldn't exist in the way that it does without Frank Ocean. You listen to some of the stuff that Taylor Swift did on Midnight's with the vocal manipulations, and that's Frank's fingerprints are kind of all over that kind of way of approaching vocals. And he's someone who's had a hugely outsized impact in some ways off of just two albums. Like he, he's someone who really punches above his weight that way. I do think it's really important that he that he came out was it's easy to forget how rare that was back then. As someone connected to hip hop and R&B, it was pretty rare and pretty important. And I think would Tyler have come out? Would Would we have Lil Nas X? I don't know. I think it was a really brave thing to do at that time and did a lot of people a lot of good and it should be mentioned and all of that and it is true he again he the fans who say this are right he doesn't owe anyone anything it's more once you're on stage then maybe you do owe them a little something <laughs> yeah i think look frank ocean has made enough great music that i think he deserves a lot of benefit of the doubt he's someone who you know even after you even if you you're festival performance is a complete flop he can always come back from it by either giving a another a better performance or releasing some great music whenever he's ready to do that i think there's always room for him to come back and i hope his ankle gets better soon again he was walking around and was dancing into the camera and lip syncing so those moments to me bring up some sort of doubt and again having seen bjork perform right before that she's not dancing on stage she was walking around and had an outfit change in front of a beautiful orchestra like those things can she, he can give a performance without without having to do so much exercise yes it is true and not to both axel and dave grohl had broken legs and performed from this throne that they both used that they sat on stage and just did their thing he could have just borrowed that throne i'm sure they would have been happy grohl would have been happy to whoever has it axel or grohl I'm sure they'd be happy to share. And he could have just sat in the chair in front of the audience and explained. He could have also said, hey, like I, hi, <laughs> I'm Frank Ocean. I hurt my ankle. We're going to do our best for you. It's just not his style to be like, I hurt my ankle. So that threw off a lot of our plans, but we're going to do our best for you tonight. We're going to give you everything we have. And I will say on the ankle, there is evidence from the hockey podcast, which is a sentence I love. There's evidence from the hockey podcast that internally at the time, contemporaneously, they were being told he had an ankle injury. So at the very least, true or not, it was something that was being said even before the performance. So whether it's a pretext or what, and I hate to doubt it, but it's just the evidence, as Tomas said, the evidence, it doesn't really all add up. Like an ankle injury doesn't make you have to hide behind. It's weird. But yeah, look, on the other hand, and I hate to default to this, we are, again, it is the first time that we're devoted an entire episode to one festival performance since Beyonce, and it required a lot less effort on his part. So maybe, maybe more proof that he's a genius. Like, I, I do wonder, like, how Beyonce feels about this, though. The performance equivalent of Beyonce in her outfit and Ed Sheeran in his t shirt, which he said is just, that's just the way they are. And maybe this is just the way Frank is and the way Beyonce is, too. 
I don't know what to say. Yeah, geniuses do surprise you. And I don't think this performance takes away from the impact of Frank Ocean in any way. But I do think that the disappointment was very much warranted and I expect better. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.